for a very long time, I struggled with the fact that I was not remarkable. I was not a special kid. I've learned that you become that, right? You become remarkable when you fight for freedom and justice and liberation, that nobody starts out that way. And when we think that people do, it's a cop-out. Hello and welcome to What's Underneath, the podcast that will inspire self-acceptance through empowering you to embrace what's unrepeatable in you. I'm Lily Mandelbaum and sitting next to me is my mom, Elisa Goodkind. And we are Style Like You. Each week we bring you interviews with diverse nonconformists about their relationship to style, self-image, and identity. Being radically honest without shame and holding that honesty with compassion is self-acceptance. If you fall in love with our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression on our YouTube channel and Instagram using the handle at StyleLikeYou. And if our stories open your eyes or are transformative on your own journey towards acceptance, please consider becoming a member of Style Like You on Patreon so that we can continue creating a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their skin. To support our work, head over to patreon.com slash you. Over the years, Chantal Langeray has been a great supporter and believer in our movement for self-acceptance, and we are super grateful to them for sponsoring this episode. Family-owned and headquartered in Paris, Chantal Langeray is committed to balancing style, quality, and function in every garment. Chantal Langeray adapts to women's needs to provide the perfect fit from A to H cups in a variety of shapes from plunge to full coverage. Listeners of this podcast can take advantage of free shipping on any order by going to Chantel.com and using the coupon code style at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code style for free shipping. So mom. Hi Lils. We're here with Janaea Khan and her adorable two-year-old playful puppy Sula so uh, you might be hearing a little bit from Sula during this podcast. Jenea is a storyteller, organizer, and futurist. They are also the co-founder of Black Lives Matter in Toronto and and is an international ambassador to Black Lives Matter altogether. So hi Jenea. Hi what's up? How are you? I'm good I'm good it's decent it's decent in LA yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you think your style says about you? <laughs> yeah. If y'all check out my closet, it is 90% black. Part of the reason why black is so consistent with being an organizer or a futurist for me is it's just, it's streamlined and it's easy. Um, as much as I love fashion, once you commit to a color, for example, or a shade, it's all about textures and accessories and uh, I feel like that stuff is really consistent with the way that I approach life which is like you get the base me <laughs> you know what I mean and the core values of who I am and that comes with me in every room that I walk into but I might change up a little bit here and there um, but the core at the core of it I'm the same like a uniform yes I can pack anything in less than seven minutes and, I, and I've had to at different times this work just takes you into so many different places and it's such a blessing that way and it can be difficult because, you know, you're not always going there for light reasons. You're sometimes going there for really heavy reasons and you have to be the light in the room for other folks and elevate the lights that are already there. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe too then in terms of being a uniform, there's something understated about it too, which is mm -hmm. I am not the center in this, you know? I'm helping us to see that the center is this work. Exactly, like it's it gives the message of being strong, like you're there, you know yourself, 
Like it's, it's definitely a part of who you are. That's the feeling that I get looking at you. Like you, yeah. this is a conscious thing, but it's consciously not taking over. Yeah. You know? You know what's so nuts though is like, black started out as a protective measure. Like I, it took me a long time to feel like being non-binary was something that it's something that I've always felt, but it can be hard because what people are p projecting onto your body is so different. You know, for you to look in the mirror and say, this is who I am, this is what I am, and then as soon as you walk out of the house, like somebody's telling you something else. Mm -hmm. it, it, when I was younger, it felt super confusing and black sort of, I'd wear black clothing and oversized clothing. It was sort of take attention away from certain parts of my body. Um, you know, it would help me be sort of genderless mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, boxing and everything else, it really brought me into, into my own. You know, I was comfortable with the fact that I was, you know, I had, I, was mu I had muscles and my chest was more pecs than breasts. And I actually love that about myself now, but it was something that I struggled with growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, not having a traditionally feminine body. As I'm talking to y'all, it's so interesting to think about the fact that black started out as super protective and now um, it's something that feels like a liberatory space for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Have you always had this like hairdo, braid, like the way you do your braids? Yeah. I, I feel like it's a very distinct part of your style. Definitely. It's interesting because similar to you know, what it means to grow into your authentic self and how that can sort of shift and change. Shaving my head was actually a part of beginning a path of what at the time was genderqueer for me. And, you know, com being comfortably non-binary now, I've, I've been growing my hair out for maybe three years. And I've settled into this sort of, this, this these plaits um, and these braids and it, it feels right. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I love them. Yeah, it feels right. Mm -hmm. Why did you, what prompted the shaving? I needed to be free in a way. Uh, I had this massive fro, like you could hug it. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? I hugged it before I, I lopped it off. And mm -hmm. um, there was a way, you know, being um, light skin, having traditionally normative features, uh, being lean. I had this huge head of hair and there was a way that I was being fetishized and there was a lot of attention on my aesthetic. And at the time that I had uh, all that hair, I was also way more feminine presenting, you know? And there's this way that it didn't feel who I was anymore. And I shaved the sides of my head off first and had a, a high top fade for a really long time. And I played with that and that was really dope. And it was interesting cause like there was a shift away and I would start wearing button downs and everything else. And I, at the time, I remember at, when I cut my hair, I was, um, I was dating this woman who was very femme presenting. And so we were both fetishized on the street. If we were holding hands, it wasn't something that people were disgusted by in a way that they can be, you know, around those of us who are sexuality diverse. But when I cut my hair off, the dynamics changed. And we weren't something that were, was part of a male fantasy anymore. Uh, I was now an obstacle in the way towards this like traditionally feminine, beautiful woman. Um, and it was such a shift for me. And um, I had to look at my own relationship to the male gaze, something that I've never wanted, but had been socialized and trained my whole mm -hmm. life to, you know, to, feel that you need yeah. or that it qual it's somehow a self-worth. Like yeah. it, it determines a worth. Yeah. yeah, it was so weird. Here I was doing this programming for all of these trans folks who were Transitioning, some were really young, some were older. Uh, so it was a multi-generational space. Um, 
and I had to fake it, you know, at the time. I had to, you, we're talking about folks who had just lost their whole family, and some of them were in their 50s and 60s, uh, left, left their whole family behind, or the family abandoned them. Um, they would travel to our programming on a bus with their wigs and their dresses and their makeup in a bag because they weren't safe enough to. And I had wear to- Wear it all the way. Precisely, mm -hmm. yeah. They weren't safe enough to, to wear it without being harassed or even beaten up. And I'm, here I am standing in front of them, um, telling them about what it could be like to get to this you know, other side, which is not a, not a gender identity, but really a place inside of yourself, mm -hmm. when I wasn't actually there myself yet. And they, they, they brought me to that place as much as I hope I did them. Were you, had you shaved already? Yeah, the hair was shaved and you know, um, winter helped, you know, being able to wear a really big jacket, but I was wearing trousers and button downs and my head was shaved and you know, I just found myself suddenly um, looked at with some hostility in a way, being more visibly queer. Uh, that I was not accustomed to, and um, I had just just started boxing, so it wasn't even about knowing how to fight or not. It was feeling such uh, disquiet in my own body, you know, just shedding all those layers of socialization about what I should look like, who you know, what I should feel like, who I should be, you know, trying to engage, mm -hmm. and who I shouldn't. Yeah, it was, it was a really strange time for me. How long ago was that? That had to have been. That was definitely in my very, very early 20s. I must have been about 20 years old. Well, that's like an incredibly shocking. Yeah. Here you are doing something that just feels right to you, and yet the programming is so insidious, and you have to completely readjust. Yes. If you had asked me, and I was just like off the cuff, you know, oh, do you care about these things? I was I said, no, of course not. What, what activist cares about these things, really? You know, and I was a fledgling activist at the time. But uh, that's not how this shit works, you know? It's just, it's, it's kind of like this idea of coming out, like you do it once and then it's over, but actually you're mm -hmm. doing it again and again and again inside of yourself as much as you are sort of having conversations with people in the world around you. It's like shedding one layer after another after another, and I think so much of it was exacerbated by having a twin who was um, very traditional in terms of her femininity, considered you know the, the pretty one and always um, more feminine to my sort of tomboyness. And up until about 18, 19, almost every day I was asked, are you a boy or a girl on the train or on a bus? And, it was, uh, and, I, and I couldn't settle on it. Uh, I didn't like being asked because it felt invasive, but I did like the fact that nobody fully knew, but I didn't have the language for it at the time. And so getting to a place where I was comfortable with it, even if everyone in the world wasn't, was a process for sure. Well, you talked a little bit about assumptions that people have made about you like over the years, um, but right now, where you're at now in your presentation, what do you feel the assumptions are that people make about you? I don't really think about it at all anymore. Mm. I get sirred at the at the airport. You so get stared at? Sirred at the airport, which is, I'm like, oh, why did it happen at the okay. airport? But it happens at the airport, and it really is about what kind of clothes I'm, I'm wearing. Mm -hmm. um, here's where I'm at now with this. There are so many people in my life who see me in my fullness um, that I don't actually need everyone else to. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and that there's nuance even in there can only be nuance in the fullness. I will always be a sister to my sister. 
And that's part of my journey. I will always be a daughter to my mother. They they need those things from me, and that's not true for everyone who's mm-hmm. non-binary or trans, um, but I know that this is true for me, that there are so many people in my life who can hold those truths for me, and that my role, when it comes to my sister and my mother, is also to hold their truth sacred as well. Um, and that's that doesn't feel uh, like a compromise to me. It actually just feels like something that's really beautiful and mm-hmm. true to our relationship. I just know that they is the most authentic way that I could be represented in this world right now, even with the limits of language. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's just some of us who are just, I don't know, too cute for two genders, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you mean by being a futurist okay but lily if you tell me what your tattoo says on your forearm oh right first yeah, okay yeah. it says power and then it's it's like a little poem do you want me to read it to yeah you? please it says call it into fullness and so watch a fire take its tone to light the world with wondrous ease that's dope <laughs> thanks interestingly enough most people in the states know me only as future uh it was a nickname some of the folks uh, in the movement for black lives gave me in 2015 probably because at the time my aesthetic was something straight out of Battlestar Galactica. Now I'm pretty sure my gender identity is ASAP Rocky. I am not just fighting for now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not just fighting for the idea of now or the idea of me. It really is having a strong sense of purpose about the world that we're building. Revolution isn't just the ending of something, it's the beginning of something Mm -hmm. new. And part of my job, as I see it, is we're not just combating uh, a presidency or an administration or even a set of policies. It's an entire belief system that is informing this administration and these policies, um, you know, and the president. And will, it will continue informing this society and this world. And so what is the belief system that we're putting in its place? Um, as a futurist, my job is to think of the, the larger core values Um, and challenge us right now into what it is that we're building because that's how we make it real. And since, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, we've seen Occupy give birth to Black Lives Matter, um, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, Standing Rock, the Women's March, right? After the Women's March, we saw, um, you know, no Muslim ban. Um, You know, we had Parkland. We had Families Belong Together. We're in the age of Me Too. We're seeing so many movements come out against things and that's so important we need them but what are the things that unite us that what are the things that we collectively know that we're building together we know what we're not building right we know that you know um bigotry misogyny hatred transphobia those things don't have a place but unless we get really clear on what some of our non-negotiables are we're actually just trying to reframe colonialism to be more convenient for somebody who looks more like me or who looks more like you um, the same thing just gets perpetuated different, slightly different form and precisely. it never really changes. It never really breaks down and, and rebirths. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time looking at the, the things that are uniting us and dividing us and at what point we diverge from each other and at what point we break. Um, and also reframing how we understand winning and success in these moments, right? Kavanaugh, uh, you know, got confirmed to the Supreme Court but we all believed across the political left, we were unified in our stance that we believed Dr. Blasey Ford. That's a win, even though it might not feel like a win. So that's half the job. The other half of the job is really looking at um, the political climate now and what it's gonna be in 10 years, in 
20 years, in 30 years, in 40 years, in 50 years. And so six, seven years ago, it was like, you know, the, the state and the government and, you know, these policies. And now in the age of big tech and massive corporations, um, it's not just that we were actually needing the same um, forces that have historically oppressed us to protect us from billionaires and the interest of billionaires and massive corporations and big tech, right? That that's the only body that's going to keep something massive like Facebook or Google accountable. And you know, Google knows so much about me, right? I mean, so much about me, and it knows so much about everyone. But what what's going to happen to that data? You know, who's going to be impacted by these by these new realities that that we exist under? And so that's the other side of my job is really um, as a futurist is to um, think about what we're what we're really calling for when we call revolution, but also t what is the trajectory of this particular new innovative thing that's benefiting us, but is but not maybe not necessarily all of us in the same ways, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because. The, if we're not dealing with the core issues in our society around racism and misogyny and transphobia and homophobia, everything that we're building, including our technology, is going to replicate our own failings. It's why um, you know, um, mm -hmm. black activists, for example, are censored by Facebook's arbitrarily enforced um, community policies more than any other more than any other population of people, right? How did that happen? And it's because we're creating um, policies and rules and algorithms that are replicating our shortcomings, right? And so we have to address the shortcomings in our and increase our ability to really see each other in, in a fullness, in a full picture, um, and also do the intervention on these new technologies that are being built uh, right now and projecting what they're gonna look like in the future. Wow. Do you think that it's possible to change them within? I know that they, can, they cannot only be changed from within, and I know that they cannot only be changed from without. You can't really know you if you don't know me. You can't. Our stories, uh, our, our idea and relationship to belonging, if you are not actively seeking me out, we have accepted the terms of bigotry and segregation and separation. How That means that your dreams for yourself are limited. That means that your dreams for freedom or futurism or technology are limited if you are not actively searching and seeking people like me out in the way that I have to rigorously do the same. Um, you know, mm -hmm. nobody, no one person is responsible for the state of things as they are, you know? But at, at a certain point, we have to take responsibility for living our full lives. And you can't live your full life if you are not actively in conversation with I, people I like me. I couldn't agree more. Can I hear a little bit more about your journey coming into this part of you that is an activist and that fights lives and breathes to fight for all of this stuff and like what sparked that and was it was it always part of who you were as a kid and how did it kind of surface i i want to name that for a very long time i struggled with the fact that i was not remarkable i was not a special kid mm -hmm. i had you know i want to tell you that 
oh, you know, I read this book when I was six. <laughs> and, you know, because I feel like that is the story that we're given a lot. And I love that there are exceptional people who exist in the world. Um, but I'm, I've learned that um, you become that, right? You become remarkable when you fight for uh, freedom and justice and liberation, that nobody starts out that way. And when we think that people do, it's a cop-out. And so... You know, I can tell you, being in, in the community that I grew up in, I grew up in um, an area called Blake and Boltby in, in Toronto, and it was uh, public housing, super disenfranchised, um, and stepping out of that small community was like stepping into a different world. Like, we lived in a food desert, you had to take a couple of buses to get to a grocery store. Um, and so you were in a community of people of have-nots, and you, you know, I'm, I'll tell you, there were days when you woke up and you woke up to police tape and blood on the pavement, you know, and you also, you know, community barbecues and somebody not having enough money to cover rent and there being just um, a little pot that somebody would leave out and money would just get tossed in there because everybody just knew what that was for and nobody questioned where it was going because everyone knew what that was like. That's activism. Um, you know, I, my mother and my sister and I, we, um, when I started high school, we lived in a women's shelter, and my mom uh, struggles with uh, lots of different mental health stuff. Um, you know, small black immigrant woman, um, just had some bad breaks, and even in a place like Canada, where the, the, the healthcare is 1,000 times more accessible than here, still, there's so many failings when it comes to mental health, you know, and, and the kinds mm -hmm. of support that particularly single mothers need. You went into a women's shelter in your teenage years, is that what you said? Uh, yeah, my sister and I were uh, 13, we were about to turn 14, entering grade 9. And from, where were you before that? Oh, <laughs> that's the story. Um, let's see, we grew up in Toronto, and then... About nine, ten years old, my mom, I think, got super overwhelmed. You know, having a teenage boy um, and then two Twins. young girls, it just got to be too much. And she reached out to her mother for help, and we ended up moving out to Florida. Long story short, that didn't work out very well. I don't think anyone understood what state my mother had been in by that point. Um, there was some addiction stuff, and there was, you know mom's taking a really firm line and being like, you've got to clean yourself up and you've got to show up. And mm -hmm. it just wasn't the kind of, there was the, the monetary support, which I think was really generous. So, so generous. You know, we got set up in a condo and everything else, but there was the, the other support around the mental health stuff that didn't work out so well. And so we woke in up in Florida. Yeah. We woke up one day and my mom was just gone. Like we were, my brother and sister and I were living in a condo and we ended up staying there for about nine months. Um, By yourselves. Uh, yeah. Um, and then uh, my mom called because we found out she had returned back to Canada. And my, so uh, she calls my grandmother and says, hey, I want my kids back. They're minors living alone. You better give them back or I'm going to call the cops because my grandmother just didn't have the space in her house. So we. So your grandma was nearby. She was. Yeah. But she, not living she, with you. Yeah. She was uh, maybe like an hour and a half walk away. We'd get a big pot of food every couple of days mm -hmm. that would just hold us over. Um, were you going to school? We were going to school. Yeah. And so On your own. You'd get up and go to school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My brother and my sister and I, he went to um, Plantation High. We went to Plantation Middle and that was our lives for a few months and then we, and we ended up getting back to Toronto. My brother had turned 16 by this time so he went and lived with a friend and my mom left us for a second time with a family that we had met once or twice uh, and then we finished grade eight and they were really kind to us, uh, to my sister and I. They had two young daughters 
And uh, my mom sort of resurfaced again uh, because at the time we were under 18, so you could still get baby bonuses. And she she needed the support as well. And so because of the shift, we went from the suburbs, so, you know, um, Florida and then Brampton, which is right outside of Toronto. And then my mom moved my sister and I into a women's shelter. And um, the women there, look, I'll tell you something. When you're in a women's shelter, you're meeting people at one of the most vulnerable places and moments in their lives. These women were fleeing abusive partners, um, you know, were struggling with addiction. Um, some most had very small children, and my sister and my mom and I had this one room with four beds, and so there was always someone we didn't know um, in the bed and it was in the room with us, and that was such an adjustment. But those women saw that my mom was struggling, and they, even in their worst moment, helped to pick up the slack. Like, uh, my mom wouldn't always put dinner aside. Uh, you have to put your dinner aside because the meal times are only at specific hours, and if you miss it, you miss it. Um, so my mom would sometimes just forget to put the meal out for me, but they always did, and they would ask me if I wanted to walk to the store with them. They'd take these sort of stolen moments to just talk to me and... Um, provide a type of support like that's activism so there were so many wow. times in my life where I it had been modeled to me even though it was never called that and they were so they were so kind to me you know that when it came time to leave the women's shelter I was actually devastated and I think those moments the moments where I've seen my mom really work and extend herself against all odds um, to be the best mother that she could be and seeing all of these um, women in this horrible time in their life still have the compassion and the empathy mm -hmm. to see this young kid who needed a little more support than what they were getting and were able to provide that. And I have never forgotten that. Hmm. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Even though it was, there was a lot of hardship and a lot of struggle, there was still so much beauty in it and it gave you so much. Yeah, it did. What did it give you? It enabled me to fully see the power and vulnerability. At that point, you know, you just, you had to be tough. And it was all about keeping up a facade. Um, you know, my sister and I would cloak the fact that we were living in a women's shelter at the time. No one had phones, no one had cell phones like that. You know, we were still landlines. And so, you know, that's how you connected. And, um, you know, some of the friends that we had made at high school were constantly calling the landline. and different women were always picking it up. We'd be like, oh, it's our aunt. Like, there must have been like 13 aunts then, you know, wow. at different times. And so there was, there was a lot of keeping up and maintaining mm -hmm. the facade. And, and that's, these women showed me that I didn't have to, that there was so much power in being vulnerable. There was so much power and care in, in showing up for another person that you could truly model what you deserved. They deserved the same kind of care that they were giving to me. They were training me in a way. And you know, even in that first women's shelter that I had, that we had been in, it was closing down and there was a woman there named Elizabeth. And um, she, it was just uh, my sister, my mother and I, Elizabeth, and then the staff, because that, that women's shelter was closing down. And she had just been through some horrific stuff. You know, uh, she had an abusive partner and he, he had gotten to the point where he, he killed her cat and she, she knew that she was next. And so she left. Um, and I mean like real dire circumstances here, you know. 
and we, my sister and I, were really struggling with the adjustment from the suburbs with this like middle class family to the women's shelter. Um, we were struggling, so we weren't eating and we weren't really speaking. And but my sister, who was far more outgoing than I, um, she knew how to swim, and so she was going to this community center as a volunteer. And I, for someone who now can so casually speak in front of thousands of people if I need to. I struggled to talk to people. I struggled to eat in front of people. Um, being around people was really hard for me. And Elizabeth saw that. And um, she just started to talk to me about her life, um, about some of the things that she had gone through. And then she started to, I, you know, and who knows? Maybe I'm reading into things, but I don't think so. You know, when I think, when I really sit with it, she just started giving me things to do. It'd be like, you know, would you go to the corner store for me. Um, you know, and give me a couple bucks to go pick up, I don't know, like a Coke for her or something. And I took that so seriously. I got the receipt, I made sure all the change was good. I wanted to show her that I was trustworthy. Yeah, and so she was channeling some of my she despair. She trusted you. She mm -hmm. showed you what trust was. Yeah, and, taught, and reminded me that I could be trusted with things. Because at that point, when there's so much moving around and um, you don't, necessarily have somebody who's providing consistent guidance and care because they just can't. Um, you, and you're a kid and you're so vulnerable, you just kind of, you just kind of lose yourself. Well, and, she you know, like mirrored to you what your, your strength and, yeah. your, and who you were, like yeah. what you could be. Yeah. I, I don't know if she understands, um, if she understood that more than 15 years later, um, this was, that our, our, exchanges our time together was one of the most influential of my life wow that's so beautiful yeah thank you again to Chantel lingerie for sponsoring this episode we love Chantel's belief that beauty and confidence don't have to come at the cost of your comfort and that when you feel comfortable your inner confidence and style will shine through Chantel soft stretch is a great example of this with lightweight breathable 360 degree adaptable stretch available in two one size range bottoms extra small to extra large and 1x to 4x find lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you and get free shipping on any order by going to Chantel.com and using the coupon code style at checkout. That's Chantel.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. And so as far as how this impacted your journey towards what you're doing now, was it, were you always on the path of activism or did you ever kind of feel like you had to take a different route with your life or, yeah? Yeah, I... <sighs> I have had a very untraditional route, I think. Mm -hmm. um, uh, high school was tough. I had no idea you know, what I was doing. I got into a lot of trouble at that time uh, because after the women's shelter, I ended up, I'm just myself, I ended up uh, going through a bunch of different group homes and it was tough. Like I remember uh, the, first time, the first time that I got arrested, um, I, didn't, I was 15 and I didn't know that you could say no to being strip searched. And because of gender stuff, like I, you know, I wore really big clothes. You know, I had, um, I wore a really big t-shirt and really big jeans. And that was, it was kind of like the style back then too, you know? Uh, but because of that, I remember regretting it because they would, they took my belt and they took my shoelaces. And now I actually can't keep my own clothes on. And um, which made me feel really painfully vulnerable. And that they might seem, they might not seem connected, but the reality is, you know, 
as a young black teenager presenting the way that I did. I was a target for police officers. You know, I looked like what they would consider a gang member, but actually I just like playing basketball. If I played basketball, nobody would question why I wore big clothes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was mm -hmm. normal then. And so there were these ways that I was sort of downplaying what I kind of mm -hmm. knew. Trying not to stand out too exactly. much. Exactly. I was living in a group home at the time, so I'm with a bunch of teenage girls. Um, they were victims of circumstance, mm -hmm. um, you know, and angry, you know. And there were certain rules that just didn't make sense for... 15, 16 year olds, like uh, in the summertime, you had to be out of the group home between the hours of 9 and 5 p.m. What are we going to do? I was, I was 15 at the time, so I was too young to work legally, um, you know, in Toronto. And so we just ended up, you know, just being outside mm -hmm. and then we would need to eat and that would, you know what I mean? Right. That would cause, that would cause trouble. So it was one of, it's one of those like loaves of bread situations. Right. Um, Why were you separated from your mother and your sister? My mom's mental health stuff became very urgent, um, very, very suddenly after we left the uh, group home. I'm sorry, the women's shelter. And uh, my brother, had he had gone to um, back to Florida for a little while to try to get his head straight. And so my sister and I um, were very vulnerable to my mom's whims. Um, she was really struggling with addiction at the time, um, and her mental health was just sort of, um, you know, at a crisis point. And so my sister ended up moving into a friend's house. And I, th I mentioned, like, I had a bit of trouble m making relationships with people because mm -hmm. I had trouble speaking to people and that kind of stuff. And so um, I ended up in a group home because there was nowhere else to place me. Mm. When I ended up in this school called Chinkuzi. Um, for your senior year. For my senior year, yeah, which I had to repeat. This group of guidance counselors, it wasn't one single savior person who was coming in. They were like, what are you doing? And I was like, what am I doing? I got on their radar because I was a minor trying to enroll on my own. And they were like, you can't. And I was like. Enroll in. In school. Like you didn't have your mom with time. you to like figure so it out. So you were driven to, to, there was a drive to like. Yes. To, to heal yourself and, and to yes for there was there there was a it was a drive in me that has led me to continue and move forward no matter what it just didn't have a direction yet mm -hmm. do where know? do you think you got that from definitely my mom she's been through so much and people treat her so badly in the world my mom is read as a person with mental health issues and um you know she's just she always came back and i know that I know that it's tough, you know, to, to sort of wake up one day and, and have her not there, but my mom always came back, and she might not have always come back for the purest reasons, but the purest thing in her was her need to be a mother. You know, she, anytime she lost herself, she always came back to that, and I definitely feel like I got that from her, and later, if, you know, if we, if we ever get around to it, I can tell you that I definitely got that drive from my grandmother as well. That's so fascinating that she literally left, but you knew that she was going to come back because you knew that she loved you. Yes. I, I didn't have as much grace when I was younger. I can tell you, I was pissed. I was very pissed I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I was mad for a very long time. But um, I think around the time I was 21, something really hit me. I realized something. Nobody else in the world was going to treat my mom better than I could. And that was it. That I had to be the person who was going to believe her. I had to be the person that was going to trust her. Um, I had to be the person that was going to advocate for her because nobody else in the world was going to do that better than me. Why do you think that is? 
you know, because people just write my mom off. You know, they see her and she's tiny and um, she's this little black woman, but also because because I love her, you know, because... You see her. I see her, you know, and if you meet her, she would say to you, she would say, she calls me Nay, Nazy, you know, uh, she'd say, you know, um, Nay lived with me since, and when Nay graduated college, you know, and that's that would be something that used to drive me mad. I'd be like, why are you, you know, why would you tell people this lie that I lived with you until I was like 20 something, you know? <laughs> when but that's the closest to an apology that I'm ever going to get. That mm-hmm. tells me where her conscience is even though she can't and it's not about guilt. Sometimes it's the better story. The story that she's built inside is a better story than what happened and everyone else that I need to know knows my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah? I know my story, so why can't I believe hers? Why can't I say, yeah, mom, I did, remember? And that be okay. It, I'm not losing anything, and she's gaining everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. her fault. It's not mm-hmm. her fault that there were Mike Harris cuts in the 90s that made it so that we couldn't even afford to live in public housing, which created the circumstances where we ended up in Florida and a bunch of other stuff, too. It's, it's just... It's not her fault. It's Mm-mm. the society that we live in. And I genuinely believe that my mom has only ever done the best that she ever could. And it was enough. You know? And mental health is just one of the biggest problems because there's so much. First of all, just the stigma, the shame, all of that is just bullshit. And then there's so much lack of recognition of how legit it is. How legit yeah. it is and how and the layers and the multifaceted of that that we all we all need under we all have issues with mental health. And mm-hmm. you know, we all this is something that's just part of life. Like you get a cold. Yeah. At different times and like and then some just some people have circumstances that just don't help them enough to get out of it or to be supported yep. to get out of it and others do. Yep. Mm-hmm. And let's talk and, about um, the fact that addiction often is uh, it begins as a coping mechanism for this these mental health realities. That's Do you know all. What I you're mean? just you're looking for a way to like be That's able it. to be happy. Like every everyone wants to be happy. They yeah. just are looking for a way and it's just it's nothing to like Yeah. It's nothing to shame or punish anyone for. Yeah. That's it. So yeah. so in a way so you were talking about your journey to activism and 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 your drive and how you felt like nobody you you were going to be the only person that could stand up for your mom and that mm-hmm. could see your mom and be there for your mom is that do you feel like that is how it all began kind of yeah looking back i mean there there was seeds that were planted i think over the course yeah. of my entire life but um deciding that i was going to be an advocate um for my mom having this group of guidance guidance counselors tell me that i'm going to mm-hmm. you know post secondary because at the time i was like mm, you know i I went as an undecided major. I had no idea what I would do um, because that's not a plan. It's not like a career path. Do you know what I mean? You can't be like, I'm going to take activism. Like that's right, just, right. you know, um, it's something that you have to choose, you know, and I talk about this all the time, but activism doesn't build character. It reveals character. It really is a, a look at who you are and who you want to be. And you're confronted with all of your contradictions because we live and exist and love through seeming contradiction. Mm-hmm. That's this society, right? And that's our, sometimes our core values and our also most basic needs, like oftentimes butting heads against each other. And so um, it, I, I think definitely the community that I was in um, helped me develop a voice. Because remember, I told you I'd struggled with my mm-hmm. voice. I could advocate for myself by the time I was maybe 18, 19, no, 17, really, when I went to the school and said, I need you to register me. But I didn't think that I had a larger voice. And that, let me tell y'all, like, 
I remember standing in front of one of my lecture halls. Like I remember this day exactly because I was late and there was maybe a hundred different, a hundred, you know, young people in there and the pr pr professor. And I was terrified to walk in because all those eyes would be on me. And I, I, I don't, I haven't yet unpacked what exactly changed in me where I'm suddenly at ease talking in front of thousands of people. But I can tell you that it does change, you know, so that those, and it changes in small moments that you, that are almost imperceptible, but, um, you know, choosing to advocate for my mom, um, having a group of people advocate for me, which pushed me into school. And then the third thing that really moved me into activism actually was boxing. Um, mm. I walked into this boxing club that and I didn't know at the time, but it was like the first women's boxing club in Canada. Um, and it was just full of a bunch of weirdos and dykes and butches and trans folks and survivors, you know, the pariahs in society. And you were home. Yeah, actually. <laughs> I walked like, in and I was like, what <laughs> the hell is this? And can I live here? You know, um, and I didn't have a language. I mean, things had been so urgent that I wasn't, I had no idea what my sexuality was. Like I just, I remember telling my friend who I've known, who's been, you know, my best friend since we were like 15, 16. I was, I, I told him I was asexual before we fully knew you couldn't just go online and look that up, or at least we didn't think you could. I heard it on the news. Um, there was just, there was just, there was no crushes and this and that, that just never happened for me. And so when I walked into this club and there were all these people who were just who they were, it gave me permission to be who I was, um, even though I didn't fully know what that was at the time. And so um, that the, the people that I met s led me to sit down in my first workshop where I was learning, where they were talking about sexism and classism and racism, and I was like, people talk about this stuff? This is so weird and cool. And then I thought, well, I don't know how to talk about exactly these things yet, but I know boxing. And so I just started going around at any conference and I would teach people how to box because that was oh. what I felt the most confident to speak mm. on. Oh, that's actually how I started to develop a, a comfortability in talking in front of people because I thought if boxing could give this to me, imagine what it could give to other people too. Like just being connected to your body, the, the more you sort of fall away from what Audre Lorde calls the mythical norm of what you should look like and be in society, the more we sort of separate ourselves from our body and our experiences and boxing mm -hmm. firmly brought me back into myself. Just knowing how to throw a punch and feeling confident enough to do so and then learning how not to apologize after you did it. Um, mm -hmm. This was especially true for women, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And gradually, as I did these workshops more and more, the, um, the content started to expand. Where as I became more comfortable and um, researched on you know other issue areas you know and you know eventually turning into things like the prison industrial complex and everything else and then you know in 2014 2015 movements really started to actualize in a really prominent way and um, I saw a place for myself in them but the those that that space and those workshops and those people mm -hmm. um, really I think created the the necessary backdrop for me mm -hmm. yeah what do you think is the biggest risk you've ever taken? <laughs> uh, even though I know that risk is an emotional thing um, and a spiritual thing, I the one that immediately came to mind was a physical one, which was when I went out to Charlotte um, when um, Keith Lamont Scott had been um, killed, uh, just middle-aged black man reading a book in his parking lot. 
um, right outside of his home, wasting time before he went to go pick up somebody. And, mm. you know, police officers came around and shot him while he was in his car. Um, you know, and the city was in upheaval. The National Guard had been called. There was a curfew set. Uh, police were in riot gear. Uh, the night before I arrived, a protester had been shot and killed, and nobody knew why or how. And so my job sometimes is to go into a city and help build a container around what it is that's happening um, and direct some of the energy and rage in ways that can uplift and amplify what the needs of the community are. And so I went out solo because I was I actually was doing a gig. I was at a college nearby, and so I just hopped on a plane and went. And I didn't have anyone that I knew, which is unusual. You're usually, you know, traveling with someone. Mm-hmm. And I had to put my trust in other movement for Black Lives people that I've never met before. You know, like a Sherelle, a Charlene Carruthers, um, the um, the former director of BYP 100. And oh, let me tell you, let me tell you, that city was tense. And, you know, the thing with protest is your, the, your job is to facilitate spectacle so that there's the energy and the attention of the world and of this, you know, is on this particular place. And so we had to protest that night and we linked arms and then the police were in SWAT and riot gear. So we shut down this, this uh, freeway and the cops took their batons and they rattled on the tunnel and everyone was so afraid and everybody took off except for this group of like really small, mostly women of color and trans folks. And we were like, all right, I guess we just looked at each other and like, I guess we're doing this. I guess, I guess we're really doing this. And we linked arms and we were like, we're gonna hold this for as long as we can. And so uh, SWAT came down on one side and eventually we were, uh, you know, we're on a freeway so we're by an underpass and they, they come at us, um, we're horizontal and they come at us in an L. Uh, formation and they push us towards the underpass and so everyone's getting you know hit with the batons and and then they whipped out the pepper spray uh my friend so uh, Sherelle has been pepper sprayed that was my point person and she had been pepper sprayed badly like military grade pepper spray so she's like I can't see I can't see and I had her one arm grabbing her and pulling her up the hill and she goes my shoe my shoe and I look and I turn around to find her shoe and it's at that moment that I get pepper sprayed which is ridiculous like y'all can pepper spray me when I was shutting down the highway <laughs> not when I'm getting my friend's shoe I get pepper sprayed I wow. lose I lose contact with my point person now and I'm we were like the last people on the hill so now I don't know where I am and for I'll be a gender justice warrior till the day I die let me tell you how I heard some guy say hey hey I, I got a female I think she's injured I was like yep that's me that's this guy right here you could just come save me mm-hmm. and he did and he pulled me up this hill and um you know we all I, I eventually find Charlene and Asha and Sherelle and we're just our faces were just like caked white and just dripping with this um you know with this like hardened pepper spray but it was wow. it was so worth the risk um when you look at a, a group of strangers total strangers and you're linking arms and you're saying, whatever happens, I've got you with your eyes. It does something in you. It yeah, reminds well, I mean, you. you're risking your life. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're risking your life. Um, Do I you feel like you're afraid of dying? Yes and no. Death is something that I got confronted with in a way that I was not prepared for when my grandmother passed away last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me confront it in a way I think what I'm afraid of is dying without living a purposeful life. And mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to feel. Even though I can say in theory I know it, sometimes my heart, um, because the, it's not like you can just change 
you can just change all the things that you want to change and the changes that I'm fighting for, I, I will. You're not going to feel like they're ever done. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to see most of them in my lifetime. Um, and so I, if I, you know, I'm less afraid of death and more afraid of not, not live, not feeling like I've ever discovered what my best contribution to this, mm-hmm. to this, to this time right now is. Um, but yeah, watching my grandmother, uh, die was hard. No, n- we don't talk about death really in, in our society where we don't talk about grief. Um, we're, we sort of talk about, you know, how uncomfortable we are with death, but we don't actually sit in that discomfort. And so, mm-hmm. um, my grandmother didn't want to die. I didn't know that you could be dying and not want to die. I know that sounds ridiculous. Oh, I so can relate to that. Yeah, and I... I, That's such a scary... Yeah. That's the worst fear. She didn't want to die, and she died anyway. And I don't know that I've made (sighs) peace with that. Um, My grandmother, my mother's mother, Shirley, she was diagnosed with uh, cancer in 2017 and we had only really known each other we've only spent time together i think four three or four no five times throughout my whole life um and you know there was a time when we lived in florida but i had you know Mm -hmm. visited her and i learned to see her in her fullness you know because british jamaican women can come across as stoic and you know and it's children are meant to be seen and not heard and sort of grew up in that but as i grew into adulthood i thought who the hell is this woman like you know, what is, how do you feel about Esther, my mother, your child, you know? Um, who are you? Um, and I got to know her story and who she was. And anyway, you know, in 2017, I could tell that something was wrong. We, we talked on the phone periodically. We, we had this sort of connection. And um, she wouldn't tell me, true to her stoic nature. And um, when I, I forced my brother and sister to get together and meet me in December, in uh, December 2017, because I said something's wrong, and I, I don't know what's going on, but I, I need you all to be there. And they rallied, and we got there. And my grandmother at that time was already bedridden. Um, the cancer was just sort of eating away at her. And her son, her el- her she has two adult sons who are my uncles who live in Florida. One lives in her home, and her husband, nobody was taking care of her. It was so not okay. Um, and I just... <sighs> I just was just like, you you can't stay here. And... You know, she took a leap of faith on me, right? I mean, she didn't know where I lived, uh, right here in this home. She didn't really know who I was outside of the times we had met each other in Florida, you know? Um, And I was asking her to come away and die with me. And um, she did. She 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 came here? Yeah, she came here. And um, Wow. Yeah, uh, she came here in the first week of, of January and was the last big trip that she could make. This past year? Yeah, um, 2018. And um, yeah, by uh, January 23rd, she passed on. But it was it was hard. Uh, I just, it was so hard, you know? Um, she just didn't want to die. And couldn't we couldn't stop the cancer of taking, taking over and... You know, the the blessing is that she had a really long life and, um, you know, that the same sort of spirit in her existed in me enough to know that, you know, that, that we could mirror each other that way, um, that she could try to help us when we were younger 
you know, and bringing that, you the food. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, exactly. And even you know, buying that condo, putting the down payment on that condo, that the plan didn't work, but the intentions were there. And that um, she could try to build a home for us, and then I could try to build a home yeah. for her in her final hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When do you feel the most vulnerable? Right before I go to sleep. Why? Um, I am replaying everything that I've taken in that day. I'm just replaying it and I'm thinking about families that are being separated at the border. Still, um, I'm thinking about how, what if, what if we get another four years? Um, what, and even if we don't, what do we do about all of this bigoted awakening in this country? Mm-hmm. Um, because That's that just doesn't begun. just go away. Just yeah, begun. you know? Um, some of those things do, they, they, they follow me into my final hours before sleep. And so I have to, I'll try to read something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm reading right now, All the Light We Cannot See, and, and that, that helps. When do you feel the most beautiful? As, as I'm walking off a stage, mm-hmm. um, after I've just delivered a speech, and not because uh, it's, I'm just excellent. I just think that people are m- the most beautiful to me always and so I'm imagining that I, and I feel this way too people are the most beautiful to me when they're doing the thing that gives them joy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it helps if they're also good at it <laughs> but that is when people are the most beautiful to me that's when they're radiant and um, doing that it gives me a lot of joy and so that is when I feel the most beautiful what does self-acceptance mean to you understanding that you might always exist between who you are and the person that you want to be. And the struggle is always worth it. Self-acceptance is honoring the place that you are at and seeing all the joys and all the hardship and still being able to see both, even though one might feel more pressing or urgent than the other. Self-acceptance is uh, self-determination, trying to find, because it's it's a constant process, but really trying to find the place for yourself where you get to be who you are, even though everyone else around you might not, that you're creating intentionally that space for yourself. But always for me, self-acceptance is um, an immense place of possibility that's created through tension. Um, that I don't think we should ever stop trying to self-accept and that, that tension is where growth happens. What do you do for the wounded child? <laughs> this recently came up so before this um talk with you two and i think partly because you know i've sat down and listened to some interviews that you've done and you really um you really uh are a testament to the power of of the vulnerable Mm -hmm. um i did not speak about things that happened before i was 21. i never i just if you look at any of my public speaking you know, it just doesn't exist. I talk about boxing, and that's that's it. That's as far back as I'm willing to go. And I am writing something that is long form now, um, starting the process of writing um, things that I've learned along the way. And it's their question when you're writing long form is, how do you know what you know? And I, I've had to confront that little kid. And it's been very uncomfortable, and it's it's a good discomfort. You know, it's the kind where growth can happen. But I realize that I, I actually have to go back to go forward now. And so, um, right now, what I'm doing for that little person is acknowledging that they are there still, mm-hmm. um, and that the work that I'm doing is for them as much as it is for everyone else. Being activism 
is being the person that you needed most in your most vulnerable moment. Hmm. Exactly. You're being that hero yeah. for your child, for the wounded child. That's what yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Hmm. But Beautiful. that kid, yeah, that kid doesn't feel wounded anymore, you know. Um, but I, that kid does care. That caring, we carry so many of our stories, but the, the blessings that I have had along the way, um, I, I, I couldn't trade them in. I couldn't trade them in for um, a less difficult path. Mm-mm. I I am so grateful for the people who have made um, space for me throughout my life, and you I, I couldn't be, be here. You yeah. wouldn't be doing what you're doing. Yeah. You wouldn't be who you are. No. That was really beautiful. Thank you so thank much. You so that was much. absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, thank you. So, 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 so amazing. A huge and heartfelt thank you to Chantal Lingerie for sponsoring this episode and for their continued belief in the power of radical honesty as a path toward self-acceptance. Chantal Lingerie listens and adapts to women's needs and fit testing on real women allows them to adjust bras to the millimeter for a perfect fit from A to H cups. Because when you feel comfortable, your inner style and confidence will shine through. For a lingerie that inspires and reflects the inner you, get free shipping on any order with the code STYLE. That's Chantal.com with the coupon code STYLE for free shipping. We hope you were inspired by this episode. Until next week, that's it from me, Elisa. And me, Lily. If you agree that facades separate us and being radically honest brings us together, help spread the movement for radical self-acceptance by sharing this episode, subscribing to our podcast, and joining us on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash you to support our work and help us build a world where everyone feels comfortable and safe in their own skin. And if you fall in love with each of our guests as much as we do, you can see them in their full self-expression by subscribing to our YouTube channel and following us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at style like you. That's the letter U instead of the word you. And check out our book, True Style is What's Underneath, The Self-Acceptance Revolution on Amazon or at a local bookstore near you. We can't skip ahead to a happy ending or live inside a photoshopped image or an Instagram filter. There is no finding oneself when glossing over the truth. 